First Peter chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 17. First Peter 3, <clears throat> verse 17. Let's hear the Lord's word. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, but some time were disobedient. And once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. God will add his blessing to the reading from his word for his name's sake. Now, would you bow with me for a moment in prayer? Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, we turn now to the throne of God, praying for abounding mercy. May the Spirit of God enable thy servant to accurately and faithfully interpret, explain, apply this portion of thy word. Give understanding to those who listen. And may we walk away, Lord, not only with more light upon the word, but with more love for the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen. As we come to verses 19, 20, and 21, we come to what is, without a doubt, the most difficult passage in Peter's first epistle. I can't imagine that you read through those verses with me and didn't say, what in the world was he talking about? Some would say it is the most difficult passage to interpret in all of the New Testament. It's passages like this that have been used to back the claim that the Bible is a book that is full of obscurities and difficulties. Those kinds of allegations have come either from infidels who want to disprove that the author of this book is God, or by the Church of Rome, which must maintain the authority of tradition above the authority of Scripture, or it's a claim made by nominal Christians who need an excuse for neglecting the study of a book which they acknowledge as being inspired and infallible and the only rule of faith and practice. If this claim were true, then you really couldn't find any fault with any of those three groups who make the claim that it is full of obscurities and difficulties. Because if the Bible is unintelligible, it didn't come from God, who is light and whom, in whose no darkness 
at all. But, but, but generally speaking, the Bible is a very plain book, written for very plain people. David wrote in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The darkness is in man's heart. It's not in, in God's word. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple, wrote David in Psalm 119. But having said that, while the Bible is not a book that is full of obscurities and difficulties, there's no denying that there are obscurities and difficulties in the Bible. Peter himself was the one who said, 2 Peter chapter 3, that in Paul's epistles there are some things hard to be understood, which the unlearned and the unstable rest to their own destruction. Therefore, I think it's somewhat ironic that Peter is the apostle who has given us what many Bible scholars believe to be the hardest passage in all the New Testament to interpret. Peter, the plain fisherman, the unlearned, untaught fisherman. So that's what we're facing this morning. It's going to make this an unusual message, not, not my norm. Uh, many preachers, if they were preaching through First Peter, would tend to ignore this altogether. Too much that you can't figure out about it. So make a passing comment and then move on. Well, I'm not going to do that. It wouldn't be right. Got to try to come up with what seems to me to be an accurate interpretation of what Peter is actually saying in this portion, you'll understand that it would be foolish, to say the least, for me to claim that I have been able to remove all of the difficulties of this passage, difficulties that have stumped the best of the best of scholars for centuries. The best of the best. No matter what view you take of it, it's got difficulties. They can't figure it out. But I trust that my handling of what is clear in this passage will be faithful to Peter's overarching purpose in this section of the epistle and will be a means of pointing your eyes to Jesus Christ because it's really all about Him. Last Lord's Day we considered from verse 18, most of it anyway, the sufferings of Christ for sinners and their sins. Peter was using the example of Christ the just, suffering at the hands of the unjust, and the great effect that that suffering and death had on bringing them to God. So by dwelling on the results and the effects of Christ's sufferings and death, the apostle has been driving all along toward a very practical end to persuade them to patiently patiently endure the persecution to submit to all of this affliction because it ends well, just as it ended well for Jesus Christ and all of his suffering. That's the whole point that Peter 
has been seeking to make. And that is the key to any interpretation that we arrive at on this difficult passage. It must fit the context. If the interpretation one gives it does not fit that context, does not fit the overarching purpose of Peter to encourage and strengthen the Lord's people to comfort them, then it has missed the boat. That's the long and the short of it. What is especially before us now is to try to figure out what Peter means in verses 19 through 21. Who are these spirits in prison? What does it mean that Christ went and preached to them? Why does Peter bring Noah, the eight that were saved in the ark, and bring baptism into this whole issue? And what does he mean when he says that baptism doth also now save us? Those are thorny questions. And what does all of this have to do with encouraging and comforting Christians who are suffering greatly? What's the point of it all? I believe that everything that Peter brings up in these verses is all about the triumphs of Christ through his suffering. The triumphs of Christ through his suffering. I dwelt mainly on the sufferings of Christ last week and only looked briefly at the close of the message on what the suffering accomplished as far as its main design that is to bring us to God. But now, now Peter expands the idea into two specific areas as far as the consequences, the effects, what I'm calling the triumphs of the sufferings of Christ. And those two areas make up my two points this morning. In verses 19 through 21, it's the triumph of Christ's suffering as seen on earth. And then verse 22, the last verse of the chapter, the triumph of Christ's suffering as seen in heaven. The triumph that comes through his suffering as it's seen on earth, and then the triumph of his suffering as it's seen in heaven. So, what do you say we get into it? The triumph of Christ's suffering as seen on earth. Our first order of business is to find out what Peter's referring to when he says that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. Of course, everything hinges on understanding what Peter means by this prison, this holding place. Various views... uh, hold the belief that the prison is a literal place. A literal place. The Church of Rome uses this verse as a proof text for their doctrine of the existence of a place called purgatory. Purgatory, a place of disembodied spirits, these spirits in prison. Universalism, held by the Unitarian Church, Universalism also is closely aligned to Rome's view because universalists don't believe there's any such thing as eternal punishment. There is no hell. Everyone will be saved. 
So the prison is the place where lost souls go to and are given a second chance. And they will gladly take that second chance after they spent this time in this prison. So both of those groups teach the heresy that you can be saved after death and get out of hell and or purgatory and get into heaven. There is a false gospel of a second opportunity that will be given to men. But Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. As I pointed out on numerous occasions, after this means immediately after this the judgment. Immediately after the soul leaves the body, it returns to God who judges it. And they go to hell or they're brought into heaven. The disembodied spirits. We'll come into that in the confession of faith uh, next the Lord's Day morning. Blessed are the dead... John said, which die in the Lord. So when you die, you either die in the Lord or you die out of the Lord. If you die out of the Lord, you die in your sin. And if you die in your sin, you're dying under the eternal wrath of God and you will suffer everlasting punishment in the lake of fire. There is no second chance. You die in Christ or you die out of Christ. Only those who die in Christ are going to be in heaven when their soul departs. Then there are some who believe that this prison is indeed a spirit world, but it's inhabited by wicked men and fallen angels. They maintain that Christ didn't go there to give them uh, another opportunity of salvation, but he went there to proclaim his victory over them and over their kingdom and their eternal damnation. He didn't come to proclaim good news for them. He came to proclaim the bad news. I won. You lost. I am the victor. You're the defeated. I am the conqueror. You're the conquered. Still others, those within the realm of Christian orthodoxy, believe that this prison was the place where Old Testament saints were held until Christ was crucified. The belief being that until he was crucified, they couldn't be brought into heaven. So Hades had a compartment, two compartments actually. One was Abraham's bosom, the other was a place of suffering in hell. And the Old Testament saints who died before Christ's death were sent to this compartment of Abraham's bosom. And when Christ, between Christ's death and his resurrection, Christ went down to them and delivered them out of that place and brought them into heaven. Made popular by dispensationalism. Now, the text that's often cited as validating that view, which I have no doubt you know people who hold that view because it's held within Christian orthodoxy. They cite Ephesians 4, 8, and 9, where it speaks of Christ descending into the lower parts of the earth 
and then ascending up on high, leading captivity captive. And the understanding is that the captivity he's leading are his people. They've been held captive there, and now they're free and brought into heaven. But the problem with that is that those being led captive, that captivity being led captive, are his enemies. They're not his people. It's a quotation from Psalm 68, verse 18, and the reference there is to conquering an enemy and leading them back to the city in triumph as kings often did when they conquered a nation or a city. They led the way behind them and the train were all these conquered enemies leading captivity captive. It has the idea of leading at the point of a spear. Paul references this whole imagery here. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, By his death on the cross, Christ, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So by his death, he did indeed lead captivity captive. He conquered, he made a show of them, a public display of them. I have won. There's no notion in Scripture at all of a divided compartment of Hades. Paradise, the third heaven, that's what the Scripture makes it very clear. It's the third heaven. It's not some other part of Hades. When Christ said to the thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, he was not talking about going down into Hades in the compartment of Abraham's bosom. Paul went to paradise, the third heaven, wherever God dwells. The descent into the lower parts of the earth is simply another way of expressing Christ's entrance into the grave. So the only other possible view, and the one I believe that Peter is giving, as to what this prison could be, it's not a literal place, but it is a spiritual condition. Not a literal place, but a spiritual condition. Spirits in prison is descriptive of men who are in spiritual bondage. As the hymn writer puts it, held by Satan's captive chains. In our hymn, in our, it's in our hymn book. Don't look it up now, but Marianne Thompson, O Zion, haste. In the second stanza of that hymn, she wrote, Behold how many thousands still are lying, bound in the darksome prison house of sin, with none to tell them of the Savior's dying, or of the life he died for them to win. That's the picture. Men without Christ, men who are lost, are in the prison house of sin. So now it becomes a matter of determining believing this is not a literal place he's referring to, a geographical location of some sort, but a spiritual condition. It, it, it's a matter of determining just what the apostle means when he says that Christ went and preached to those living under the bondage of sin. Just who are they? One view is that according to verse 20, Peter is referring only to those people 
alive on the earth before the flood. The people to whom Noah preached. That's why I mentioned Noah. The disobedient in Noah's day. That those are the ones being described here. After all, Peter writes, does he not, in his second epistle, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And and the belief is that Christ, by his Spirit, preached to these people who were in the prison house of sin, who were condemned, who were doomed. He preached to them through Noah. Christ preached to them by a spirit that was in Noah through Noah. At the end of verse 18, it's an important part of this whole passage. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the spirit. Christ was put to death in the flesh. In other words, he literally died. He didn't faint. He didn't swoon. He was put to death in his flesh. He was laid in that tomb as a lifeless, powerless corpse. His body was dead. His spirit had left. He was put to death in the flesh. But he was quickened, made alive by the Spirit. Now here comes a question. Just what does it mean he was quickened by the Spirit? Now it's quite true that the Word of God teaches that the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. It also says that the Father raised him from the dead. It also says he raised himself from the dead. You have the whole Trinity involved in the resurrection. But it does make it very plain that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Listen carefully. But if the Spirit of him, that's the Father in this case, but if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, the Holy Ghost... Dwell in you, he, that is the Father, that raised up Christ from the dead, shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. So there's a clear declaration that the Holy Ghost raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. He was quickened by his Spirit. But there's another problem that arises from that translation of that part of verse 18. The Greek text won't bear it. It won't hold that translation. The words flesh and spirit at the end of that verse are in the same case in the original language. It's the dative case. There's no definite article there. The words occur in the dative case. I should back up and say there are some Greek manuscripts in which the definite article appear, mainly the Westcott and Hort text, but that's another story altogether. It doesn't occur in the majority text. But they're both in the dative. In other words, there's a very close relationship between these two words. What you say of one, you're saying of the other. If you say that Christ was put to death in the flesh, then you're compelled to say that he was quickened in the spirit. Not by, but in the spirit. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. 
Christ was quickened in the Spirit. He was quickened spiritually, yes, by the Holy Ghost, but it was His own Spirit that was quickened. Now, quickened in the New Testament is used to refer to basically three, three ideas. One way that word is used refers to the giving, the original giving of life. Secondly, it can be used to refer to the restoration of life from the dead. And thirdly, it's used to speak of the giving of a much larger measure of life to those who are already alive. A larger measure of life. That was certainly true of Christ. When he was raised from the dead... By God. Christ became alive and powerful in a sense and to a degree in which he was not prior to his sufferings and death. As the Son of God, he had life within himself. As the Son of God, infinite. Endless, omnipotent, boundless life. But as the Son of Man, as the mediator between God and men, Christ was born in weakness. He lived in weakness. And he died in weakness. That's the testimony of the New Testament. All power was given to him who had been crucified in weakness. All power is given unto me. All authority. And I say, go ye. I am with you always to the end of the world. The second Adam, Paul says, does he not, was made a quickening spirit. The second Adam, that's Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. The captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Made perfect through suffering. Surely you know that in the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ, he experienced deep sorrow. In his soul, deep sorrow, broken heartedness. Not after the resurrection. Never more sorrow. Never more a broken heart. Never more weakness of any kind. He was quickened in spirit. But he humbled himself. He became obedient unto death. And God hath highly exalted him and given him power over all flesh. That's the quickening we're talking about. Life to a degree he did not know prior to his crucifixion. 
We're all acquainted with those verses that speak of the Holy Spirit equipping Christ to preach the gospel. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Think about the prison house now. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. As you know, Christ quotes from that very chapter in Luke chapter 4 at the commencement of his public ministry. I am fulfilling this before your very eyes. I have been sent, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Christ came to proclaim the gospel to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that were bound in sin. But there's another problem that arises here. It seems from verse 20 that Christ preached to those who lived before the flood... Let me give you a literal rendering of that. Who, these spirits in prison, who formerly or aforetime were disobedient when, at one time, when the patience of God waited in the day of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So in other words, Peter says that Jesus Christ came and preached to spiritually captive men who were hard to be convinced in former times, especially, especially in the days of Noah. We know that for a fact. Why? Because only eight were saved. A couple of million at least, I mean, that's a conservative estimate. Only eight. And that's the point he's making. Only eight. They were bound. These spirits in prison aforetime were disobedient. And Christ had preached to them not only by Noah, and that's the whole point. It's not just the men to the reverence of Noah's day. They're just being singled out. But Christ preached to them not only by Noah, but by all the prophets, because all of the prophets had the Spirit of Christ on them as they proclaimed God's Word. But in a great measure, Christ, as He was preaching, it was in vain. That's the testimony of the Old Testament. He had to complain in reference to the preaching of His prophets and of his own personal preaching prior to his death and his resurrection. Here's what he says. Listen, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a, to a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Who hath believed our report? Isaiah asked the question, chapter 53. You find that over and over again. But now, now after the death of Christ and being quickened in spirit and quickening others by the spirit, the results are astounding. 
You ever wonder what Christ meant when he told his disciples, you're going to do greater works than I have done? Greater works than these. And they did. You see, the reference to the sinners of Noah's day was simply an example of how entrenched men were in their bondage to sin prior to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Just an example of how entrenched, how in bondage men were to their sin prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at the immediate effects of Christ's ministry, and as far as sheer numbers are concerned, how effective was he? Mind telling me? As far as sheer numbers go, how effective was his ministry? His preaching? He was rejected. The vast bulk rejected him out of hand. He has a small band of disciples. 500, he appears to after his... 500! Right? What happens after Pentecost? Thousands upon thousands are converted instantaneously. My, things changed. To keep with the imagery of how hard, how in bondage men's hearts were, Peter says only eight were saved. Out of that vast number, only eight. For a hundred years, Christ preached through Noah. For hundreds of years, he preached through the prophets. But men's hearts were held captive. What happened after Christ rose again? The extension of his kingdom was astounding. It happened after his resurrection. The extension of his kingdom was astounding. This is the preaching that Peter, I believe, was referring to in verse 19. Jesus Christ quickened in the Spirit after his resurrection from the dead, went and preached to those bound in sin. It's not a reference to his own bodily preaching ministry while he was on the earth. It's a reference to the preaching that he did spiritually through the apostles. Multitudes believed and were saved, not just eight souls, not just a handful here and a handful there. Multitudes. After he was quickened in spirit, the power of his resurrected life. This is where the context comes into play. If any interpretation that you want to give to that passage misses this context, it misses the boat. What's the point of bringing up about these men in prison and 
Noah's day, and only eight are saved. What's Peter been driving? He's been driving at encouraging them and comforting them in the midst of all of their sufferings. That it's going to end well. Despite what you have to go through. Peter is telling all of this to them to get them to see that the end result is worth all the suffering they have to face. The end result is worth all the suffering they have to face. In other words, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of suffering unjustly at the hands of men. Christ suffered unjustly at the hands of wicked men. And even though it ended up in his death, that ended up in his being spiritually quickened. And look what that brought about. The thing I want us to remember from all of this is that when we are in the midst of it, when we're in the midst of fiery trials and when we are in the midst of suffering unjustly at the hands of wicked men, you just write this down and you remember it. When we're in the midst of deep sorrows of heart, we must, we must Look beyond the immediate trouble and look at the cross, that's Christ's suffering and death, and look at the empty tomb and then up to the right hand of God where Christ has been exalted and then to what he gained, what he gained from all that he went through. Isn't that exactly what Paul was telling the Hebrew Christians who were suffering greatly in the midst of persecution, looking off unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of her faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, the, the shame now set down at the right hand of God. Look. Look at what is accomplished through going through the suffering and submitting to it. And trusting the Lord. And not quitting. And throwing in the towel. And living in defeat. And living in fear. That's the point. Our common mistake is that we fix our hearts and our minds on the trouble. And forget all about the triumph that Christ has already won and has promised to give us. He was quickened in spirit. It's Christ's spirit that is in us. Christ's spirit. What we must keep reminding ourselves of is that we're safe in Christ. That's the point of what appears to be a digression in Peter's passage here in verse 21. Seems like he's digressing when he brings up baptism. In the world is he bringing up baptism in the midst of all this? He says at the end of verse 20 that eight souls were saved by water. 
best commentary on that is Genesis chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. To explain what it means, saved by water. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased. We know what happened to those who were not in the ark when the waters increased. They drowned. The waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. The very waters that drowned the wicked were the waters that bore up the ark. It was in that place of safety. It's the picture of Noah being saved by water. He and his family, that brings to Peter's mind baptism. He says there's a like figure, type. That just as Noah and his family were saved by water, so Christ's people are saved by water. Now, as much as the baptismal regenerationists want to use this as a proof text for their doctrine, we know all too well from the Word of God that you're not going to be regenerated through baptism. Regeneration is that work of the Holy Ghost, an act of God the Spirit that brings life, where the, a creative act of God the Spirit who brings life where there's nothing but death. That's the new birth. That's being born from above, not born again through waters. That's what Rome teaches. That's, that's what happens at your baptism. You get life. That's not what the scriptures teach. So Peter is not indicating for one moment that we're actually saved by being baptized. In fact, he wants to make that very clear. That the waters of baptism have no power to deal with sin. Those who are dead in sin. Not putting away of the filth of the flesh. Can you actually believe that there are interpreters who say he's referring to washing away the dirt from the body? Can you actually believe that? I mean, are, are, to me that's actually astounding to have that even as a possible interpretation. He's not talking about taking a bath. putting away of the filth of the flesh is the putting away of the corruption, the depravity of sin. It doesn't do that. Baptism cannot put away the filth of the flesh. It cannot put away the corruption, the depravity of human nature. Impossible. But what does he say? The answer, or the appeal, literally, the appeal of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism symbolizes, I grant you that, it symbolizes the washing away of sin, but it can't remove sin. What is baptism a symbol of? 
that by the Spirit's work of regeneration, I have been washed from all my sin, and I have been united to Jesus Christ in His death and in His resurrection. Buried in Christ, risen in Christ. That's the point of the baptism. That's the symbolism. My union with Jesus Christ. My, how, how comforting, how encouraging that would be to these believers who are really going through it. Wicked men attacking them, putting them to death. Great persecution. Baptism doth now save us. No, it doesn't save us from our sin. What it gives to us is this appeal of a good conscience. My conscience has, is clear. My sin has been forgiven. It's been washed away by Jesus Christ's blood. I died in him. I am risen in him. Quickened in spirit. That's me. I was quickened with Christ in spirit when I was born again by the spirit of God. Baptism is just the, the symbol, the outward sign of, a, of an inward reality. Isn't that what we need to understand when we are in the midst of it? We're, we're safe in the waters. We're not going to be destroyed. It's all going to end well. My life is hid with Christ and God. And that is one of the wonderful consequences of Christ's suffering and death. It's what it resulted in. Can you you not see? With that mindset, with with living in that light? Okay. This is all okay. This is going to work out for good. They've taken my children away from me. And it hurts. But I know how this ends. I'm going to have to suffer at the hands of wicked men. But I know how this ends. It will end just as it ended for Christ. I might have to die. I might have to die. Forget about some secret rapture snatching you away that will get you out of the tribulation. You might have to die for your faith. But that's okay. You know how it ends. The consequences, there's just the sheer consequences of Christ's death. What his, what his suffering brought about? Well, just maybe when I have to go through the sorrows, there's going to be a whole lot of good that will be brought about that I have no conception of. A whole lot of people are going to be benefited. That's the triumph of Christ through his sufferings on earth. 
It's verse 22 that deals with the triumphs of Christ and his sufferings as seen in heaven, but that's not for today. May God write his word on our souls for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Our God and Father, we thank thee we have the Holy Ghost to enlighten our minds and the pages of Holy Scripture. We pray, Lord, that when we come to what are no doubt hard to be understood passages of Scripture, we will seek the mind of God. Deliver us, Lord, from resting the Scriptures as those evil men of old did. And where we cannot understand, Enable us, Lord, to simply rest on what we do understand and to rejoice in what is clear. Lord, make us a people who in the midst of suffering show the joy of the Lord that the wicked might see our testimony, the way we live, and realize there's something different about us, that they, they might be turned from their sin. We thank Thee for the risen Christ. We thank Thee, Lord, He was quickened in spirit. We pray that that power would rest upon us, even as Paul spoke. He wanted to know the power of His resurrection in His life. We pray it will be known in ours. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.